It's really good to uh, see all the physical faces in the room. Really excited that you're here with us this morning as we continue to, you know, step forward, walk through the reopening process and that deal. Those of you who are over in, where's the camera? Right there. There it is. Those of you over in the pavilion, uh, super glad you're here as well. And of course, to the many families who are still watching from home, um, we're really glad that you've joined us this morning. And... uh, If you've been with us over the past several weeks, we have been doing a series on the book of Jonah, and probably most of us in here have heard of the story of Jonah, but probably just way more simplified than what we've been walking through over the past several weeks, right? And today we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 3, the entire chapter. So if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and take it out, You can, or on a device, you can get flipped over there to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read the whole thing. But for us to really understand the significance of Jonah chapter 3, we need to make sure that we know like what's leading up to this, the context, right? And so maybe you've been here, maybe you've watched, but maybe you've missed out, um, Long story short, just a brief kind of recap of the story of Jonah. We see Jonah is a prophet. He's someone who speaks on the behalf of God. And uh, this wasn't an unusual thing at the time. God came to Jonah and he says, hey, I want you to go to this city called Nineveh. Uh, This Nineveh had quite the reputation. We're going to get into that in a little bit. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to tell them, like the way that they've been acting, their wickedness has kind of come before me and, and there needs to be a change. Like, that's what he tells Jonah to do. And if you know the story, you know Jonah, maybe because he's kind of afraid, maybe because he's a little prejudiced against the Ninevites, maybe because he kind of hopes that God will actually destroy these people, he runs the opposite direction. Gets on a boat, heads out to a different place. Uh, Long story short, there's a big storm that God sends. He kind of fesses up to what's going on. He says, throw me overboard. They're like, okay, we'll do that. And he ends up in the belly of a fish. And last week, Matt walked us through the events that went down as he was uh, having a three-night stay in the belly of a fish. And it's as bad as you might imagine. And what we, what we find him do throughout this process is at the beginning of those three days, he's like, good, I would kind of rather die than actually go to Nineveh. But three days, sleeping in fish guts kind of changed his attitude a little bit. And we see him give, and this is important, give this like half apology to God so that he could be delivered out of the belly of the fish. It's important because later we're gonna see this distinction uh, between how Jonah reacts and later on in this chapter how the Ninevites react. He gives this, it's not repentance, it's just kind of this half apology to get out of the situation that he finds himself in. And God shows mercy in this. God shows grace to Jonah and he has the fish vomit Jonah up onto the shore. And this is where we catch up with Jonah at the beginning of chapter three. I I imagine him laying on the beach, covered in fish vomit, and he's like, all right, I guess I gotta get up and and start this thing over. So I I picture him getting up, kind of cleaning himself off, getting his hair all good, ready to go. And this is what we read, this is what we see happen, this interaction between Jonah and God in this moment after he had been vomited up by the fish. It says in, in verse, uh, in chapter three, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So I see Jonah kind of standing up. Maybe he was really hoping that like this whole thing was just, would just kind of 
blow blow past, like maybe God would like give him an out or whatever. But this is how I imagine in my head. I don't know if this is actually how it went down, but I imagine God kind of looking at Jonah like a drowned rat, a little pathetic looking, and he like he kneels down, he's like, Okay, buddy, let's try this again. Like that's exactly what I picture. It's like you've been acting like a baby this whole time. Let's just let's just like follow that through. Okay, bud, you ready to try this again? And he gives him a second chance. He gives him a second chance to do what he should have jumped at the opportunity to do. And to Jonah's credit, at least in this moment, he's not very reliable, as we've discovered. In verse three, it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He got up and he went there, according to the word of the Lord. He's ready to go there and he's ready to communicate the message that God had asked him to communicate, that The Ninevites' wickedness has come before God and that something needs to change. Now, it's important for us to have a little bit of context as to what Jonah is walking into so that we can understand and be able to even sympathize a little bit how Jonah reacted to this situation. So the Ninevites, they were part of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire was a rough old place for sure. There, if you're kind of a skeptic uh, in, the, in the room or, or watching this morning, that's great. I'm so glad that you're diving into this, but even just extra historical stuff paints a really tough picture of the Assyrian Empire. At the time when Jonah was alive, it was the largest empire that had ever existed up to that point. And they pretty much only grew through military conquest. Like they went and they took land, they conquered cities, and it was all through violence. It was all in, uh, in military conquests. And to this day, people, historians, they still look back at the Assyrian Empire and they study their military tactics and they, there's things that they can learn from them. And it just proves more and more, the more that they discover about the Assyrian Empire, these people were absolutely brutal. Super, super brutal. Very, very violent people. They used brutal tactics and they were brutal people. There's a ton of archaeological proof to their brutality. Uh, there's these, I, f- I found these interesting um, kind of carvings, these stone carvings that uh, people who were kings and high officials in the Assyrian Empire, they would, they would line the hallways in their palaces with these basically pictures of their conquest just to remind people as they were coming down the hallway, like this is what we're capable of. And it's pretty, it's pretty bloody and it's pretty violent. And I, was, I actually had plans to kind of really go into it, really paint a very vivid picture for everyone. And then I realized like, oh, any kids who are on campus <laughs> this morning will be in this room, not to mention uh, any kids watching at home or if you're like my family, kids running around that might happen to hear this at home. And I don't really want to get a bunch of emails and phone calls about your kids' nightmares. So we're going to skip that part, all right? But if you're interested, man, Google that. It is wild. Some of the stuff they did is wild. And the Israelites and the Ninevites, they definitely had their clashes, and it didn't really end well for the Israelites most of the time. And so there was this prejudice against the Ninevites uh, that was deeply felt in the nation of Israel, and Jonah wouldn't feel any different about that. Why do I bring this up? Well, it's important for us to to realize this because it helps us understand maybe why Jonah acts the way he does in the next few verses. So Jonah is willing to do what God said because God got him out of that bad situation with the fish. And in the second part of verse three, uh, he finds his way to Nineveh. He's walking in. I imagine him walking in, you know, the front gate of the city pretty nervous about how this is gonna go, but trying to do what what God had asked him to do. And here's what it says. 
Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, when it says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, that's talking about its size, yes. It was like seven miles. It was like a big oval that was seven miles long. Um, And it was also a really significant city at that time. And it says it's a three days' journey in breadth, but it doesn't take three days to walk seven miles, no matter how slow you are, right? Um, And so more likely, people believe that it would have taken about three days for Jonah to make the rounds in this city, communicating the message that God had asked him to communicate. We got to remember, you know, he didn't, he didn't roll in and like go to the nearest radio station and say, hey, can you broadcast this, right? He didn't have the ability to send out an alert on people's phones. He was just stuck like walking the city telling this message. And scripture tells us pretty clearly it would take about three days for him to do that. But look what Jonah does in verse four. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. One day's journey. And he called out, oh, we're gonna, we're, we're, wait just a second. I'm gonna save that, all right? So he goes, he goes one day's journey into the city, which should take about three. And already we're seeing this reluctance on Jonah's part to actually do what God called him to do. I picture him walking into the city. He gets one day in. He kind of stops. He's kind of irritated that he's even there. He looks around and he's like, ah, this is good enough. And so he gets ready, clears his throat, <clears> throat> And he gives, hands down, the worst sermon ever recorded. Hands down, the worst one. I don't know how long you'd be coming to Crosspoint or if he came to First Baptist when it was First Baptist. Uh, you've never heard a sermon this bad, I promise you. I've gotten to go to a lot of different churches and I've heard some real terrible sermons. I have given some real terrible sermons. None of them compare to this sermon that Jonah gives these people. It is absolutely terrible. It's five words in Hebrew, it's eight words in English. And this is what it is. You ready for this? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's all he said to these people. He went in one day, stopped, said this is good enough, and said, yet in 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. I even imagine him muttering it out of the side of his mouth. In 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, Excuse me? Uh, 40, 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. What do you mean by that? Just 40 days, you'll be overthrown. Yeah, but like what? Just 40 days, overthrown. That's all he gives them. It is such a terrible sermon because it doesn't tell them why Nineveh's gonna be overthrown. Doesn't tell them who he's speaking on behalf of. He doesn't even mention God in this. He doesn't tell them how to avoid this or if it's avoidable. He doesn't give them any practical action steps out of this, and there is no hope attached to this message, which is unusual of the prophets. Most of the time, prophets, they'd go and they'd say hard things to people, but then they would always offer hope for something different. Jonah doesn't offer any of that. I don't think it's because he was just really, really confident of his preaching skills. I think he didn't want them to succeed. He didn't want them to change. That's totally in line with the Jonah that we have gotten to know over the past several weeks. He walks in there and he gives the bare minimum, the least amount of effort possible. And honestly, it shouldn't have worked, right? It shouldn't have worked. Could you imagine if you're walking in like downtown Modesto, not even like the populated part, like some side alley, and some dude's back there and he's like, hey, 40 days and Modesto will be overthrown. We'd be like, well, that guy's crazy. We're just going to continue on with our life, right? It shouldn't have worked. But we see the Ninevites do something really, really unexpected. It says in verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
That's super interesting because Jonah didn't even ever mention God. It doesn't say that they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. And of course, we don't have all the details, but I think this, this just shows how at work the Spirit of God was even to cover over all the gaps and failings that Jonah brought into this situation. It says the people of Nineveh believed God, and here's how they responded. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. So, they, so they, they called to the people around them. They said, hey, we need to not eat, and we need to grieve for the things that we have done. And we're going to put on sackcloth, which is kind of like burlap. It was a symbol to, to sit in our uncomfortableness of what we have done. And it's not just a certain type of person in Nineveh. It says from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the, the powerful to the people who don't have a say in anything. From the rich to the poor and everyone in between, they all had this collective response of grief and real repentance. That something needed to change. And so this news spread like wildfire, this terrible, terrible sermon, the result of it spread like wildfire all throughout the city of Nineveh, and it made its way all the way to the top of the power structure. In verse 6, it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. Not Jonah made a way for him to get into the presence of the king. Jonah didn't really seem to care about making sure the message was heard by the king, but it just says the word reached the king of Nineveh. And his response is so unique, so unusual, and so amazing. This is the king of Nineveh, okay? He has all the power in the world to decide how things are going to go. I don't think he got to be king of Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire by being a nice guy, all right? I'm sure he had lots of bodies in his wake. He, was, he, he, he ruled with brutality, and he earned that title through brutality. And this is what he decided to do. He didn't try to prove that there was nothing to worry about. He didn't go round up Jonah and bring him in front of him and say, you tell me exactly what's going on here. He didn't have Jonah put to death. He didn't try to spin it or try to escape it. He didn't try to scold his people for overdoing it. This is what scripture tells us he does. And he arose from his throne. Can you imagine this? He gets up out of his throne removes his robe, the symbol of power, of kingship. And he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The king who acquired all of his power through the very thing that he was getting called out for, got up, took off his symbol of power, and he humbled himself by putting on sackcloth and sitting down the ashes. He grieved and repented as an individual, even though he had all the power in the scenario. What a picture of humility, right? And then he calls for a corporate grief and repentance. In verse 7, it says, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. And this is kind of hilarious, I think. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. So he's like, don't let any person or any animal eat anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. This is, this is a super comical scene because I don't... I, no judgment if this is you, but you know, you know when um, people take their little dogs, they're usually little dogs, and they make them like wear outfits, you know what I'm talking about? I've never seen a dog wearing an outfit that looks like they're loving their life, that's for sure. 
But what the Ninevites have done is that, can, can you imagine how much worse that would be when they're like, hey, come over here, cow. Can you get in this sackcloth real quick? Come here, my, or my entire flock of sheep. Like, let's grieve together. Why don't you put on sackcloth? It's like a comical scene because they went like so overboard with this, right? There was no reason for that. But they were like, man, just in case, we need to make sure we do this thing right. It showcases, even though it's kind of funny, it showcases like their uh, deep felt need to make a change. It shows like a real grief, a real repentance for what they were done. And in fact, it kind of proves that they didn't really get all the details. But what we do see is we see the Ninevites get the heart of Jonah's really, really bad message. Here's what the king says. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What an awesome prayer of salvation, right? Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. That is all they've ever known. And I love how he, how he, he uh, finishes it up here. He says, who knows? He's not even sure. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Man, do we see this incredible distinction between how Jonah responded last week in chapter two and how these Ninevites are responding right now? It took Jonah three days in the worst of conditions to squeeze out a half apology. It took one day of terrible preaching and an entire city's heart was changed. They didn't know all the details. They weren't even sure if it was gonna pan out for them, but they knew, man, something has to change. What a beautiful, beautiful response. And we see God respond to them in this way. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is where uh, most of the kids' Bibles end the story. And honestly, it'd be kind of great if this is where the story ended. Because this is kind of the triumphant climax of the story of Jonah. Like, God poured out his mercy onto these people as they repented and turned from the way that they used to do things. Now, we're going to see how Jonah was a little bit slower to recognize this mercy and this grace that God had for all people. But what we can learn from and what we can see displayed to us in Jonah chapter three is this chapter just proves beyond a shadow of a doubt how merciful God is. And honestly, that's one of, was one of our big hangups with God, so many of us. Like, could God actually forgive that? Would he forgive it again? Like, is he actually merciful? Because I look around out here and I see all kinds of things that make me think like maybe he's not. That's why passages like this are so important because God's mercy is all over every verse in this chapter. You go back to the very beginning. You see Jonah covered in vomit laying on the beach and God gives him a second chance. I don't think any of us would blame God if he said, hey, I don't think that we're gonna use you anymore. Like, obviously you can't follow instructions, so I'm gonna find a different prophet. I don't even think a lot of us would blame God if he's like, hey, you've, you've like, Run from me, you've turned your back on me, and I'm gonna turn my back on you too. But that's not what we see happen. We see him give him a second chance. We see God's mercy at play uh, through God's spirit at work in the Ninevites. 
It's amazing to me how they could respond to a God that wasn't even mentioned in the message that Jonah preached to them. Obviously, God's spirit was at work before Jonah even got there. God's mercy is shown to every single person who shows up in this passage, from the least of those people who live there all the way up to the king and everyone in between, even the cows get part of it. (laughs) The whole thing is just drenched in God's mercy and that is really good news for every single one of us in this room, in the pavilion, online. That is really good news for all of us because I've come to this conclusion. Every person in here can look at this passage and see themselves in it. I I feel pretty confident saying that. I think every single one of us can look in here and we can see ourselves. We can identify with a character or two in this passage of scripture. I think for a lot of us, especially those who have been around church a long time, we, if we're honest, kind of see some similarities between us and Jonah. We know God, we worship God, we love God. Uh, We say we want him to lead our life. Uh, we would say, like, we're following Jesus, but if we're really honest with ourselves, man, we're so stinking slow as we do it. That's what I see pop up over and over again in Jonah's story. He's just like the slowest prophet ever. He's slow to come to realization. He's, he's slow to act in obedience. He's just kind of dragging his feet, just plodding along because he's so stubborn. I think about it like this. Uh, my family and I, we do a lot of hiking, and uh, right now, Vita, our three-year-old, uh, she's in that like weird middle spot. We did this with our other kids where you're really too big for me to carry you in a pack thing the whole way because I will be like a foot shorter by the time we're done. So I really need you to like walk some of this. And so we've been picking trails lately where it's flat enough so that she actually can kind of walk along. And the deal is with Vita in particular, she is ultra capable. She is 100% capable of hiking as much as any of the rest of our family. But she doesn't always want to. And so this is constantly the scene as we're hiking. We're going, we're walking. I look back, Vita's walking, she's way over there. And, and I'm, I, I've said this a thousand times every time we go hiking. Vita, hurry up. Walk a little bit more. I look back, she's still way over there. Vita, hurry up. Like, I am ruining the vibe for anyone who wanted to get out there and experience, like, natural quiet, all right? I'm just, all they hear is some dad, like, yelling at their kid, like, Vita, come on, come on. And this is always how she responds. She's over here, like, playing with a flower or bug or whatever, and she hears me say, Vita, come on. She looks up. Sometimes she doesn't listen the first time. I'm like, Vita, come on. She looks me in the eyes, and she goes, she's walking. And I'm like, Vita, come on. She looks me in the eyes, and I just know what's back there. She's like, I'm doing it. I'm coming. I'm just coming on my own timing. Like, she does that all the time, and that's comical to us, but man, I feel like that's exactly what Jonah did in this passage. He's shuffling into Nineveh. Ah, I've made it a day. This is fine. He's just giving just a small shred of the message that God actually asked him to give. And he's just dragging his feet. He's just putting in minimal effort. And I think maybe if we're honest with ourselves, some of us find ourselves falling into that same trap. Where it's like, God, I, I want you to lead my life, but I would kind of rather set the pace if, if we could. We're all about following Jesus, um, but we don't always want to go the speed that he goes. Like we say, like we're sorry, but a lot of times it's self-serving, like Jonah 
We say like, yeah, we love people, but oh, those, those people too? Does it have to be those people too? We want to stand against injustice and we want to act justly, but then we're like, but let's not go overboard. We don't need to like go overboard with this. Over and over again in my life, I find myself falling behind, dragging behind, dragging my feet, being kind of stubborn in the path that God has placed in front of me. And I think a lot of us find ourselves doing that. I think many of us who are Christians, we wanna take the path that follows Jesus, but we wanna set the pace. But the problem is the stakes are too high for that because this is the path and the speed that holds hope, not just for us, but for everyone. Those of us who identify with Jonah, man, I would encourage us to consider this. If God could use a whiny, uh, lazy prophet with, who, who preached a terrible, terrible message to change the heart of an entire city and culture, imagine what he could do with a group of people who say, I am all in on this. Actually, we don't have to imagine that. That's what the entire book of Acts is about. A bunch of people who, with all of their failures and all of their mistakes, said, man, I am in this 100%. And they changed the entire world. But here's the deal. It wasn't in their own strength. Because there was another prophet that walked this earth. And like Jonah went to the belly of a fish, this prophet went into the ground into a grave. But he didn't get thrown up out of it. He busted down the door victorious three days later. That, that prophet's name is Jesus. And where Jonah put in minimal effort, Jesus put in the entirety of effort because nothing we could do could ever get us there. Only he could provide the way forward. He gave us a picture of what mercy is. Jesus is the face of mercy. And so many of us, I am sure, feel like we keep running up against the same things. And what we need to do is we need to reevaluate, we need to reassess, we need to look mercy in the face in Jesus. And we need to keep step with what God has called us to do. Now, some of us identify with Jonah, but I bet there's some of us maybe in the room or watching who also identify uh, not with Jonah, but with the Ninevites, which is actually better for you in this moment. Because you recognize the sin that has separated you from God. Maybe you thought it was fine, but over time, or maybe today for the very first time, you realize that the, that the way that you have been living is self-serving, it's selfish, it's wrong, it's violent, it's unjust, it's whatever. And you're left asking the question, could that mercy that we just read about in Jonah could that mercy that you're talking about that we see in the face of Jesus, is that still on the table? Is that something that I could participate in? That's the question, right? That's the question for all of us. Because if the answer is no, then what is all of this worth? My father-in-law, he, um, he does a lot of prison ministry and uh, he, he lives in Canada, and there, there are criminals in Canada, and they're like real criminals. It's not like they just didn't say sorry one time and ended up in jail. Like, they're real deal criminals. And he, he would go to this uh, prison and share the gospel and do Bible study with people, play music, that kind of thing. And he'd been going quite a while, and he, he began to notice this really big uh, native guy who always sat on the fringes, never really participated. And... Uh, he was up there preaching one time, and this is, this is after seeing this guy a lot of weeks and a lot of months, and uh, he's up there preaching one time. He's talking about the hope that's found in Jesus and that Jesus can forgive whatever sin that, that has a hold of our heart. 
And they're praying with some of the inmates, and he, he steps down off the little platform that he was preaching from, and this big guy just, like, barrels toward him, like, super aggressively, like, gets in my father-in-law's face, and he's like, he's like, hey, is the God that you were talking about there, can he forgive murder? Because if he can't, there's no hope for me. And Mike was able to, in an instant, stare this guy in the face, not stare this guy in the face, he was a big guy, Mike's a small guy. He was able to stare him in the face and without hesitation say, Absolutely, he can. And I wonder if that's something that we need to hear today. Whatever you wrote down on that piece of paper, whatever you typed into your phone, if you think, could God actually forgive that? Let me just look you in the eyes and say, absolutely, he can. This should prove to us, Jonah chapter three should prove to us how committed God is to extend mercy to us even when we don't even recognize it. And it changes everything. When we, when we become aware of his mercy and we realign our life to him, it changes everything. Jesus is looking you in the eyes and saying, my mercy is for you too. I can cover over that too. And here's why that's so important. And the band's gonna come up and we're gonna close with a song that I would, I would love for you guys to just uh, contemplate, I guess, the lyrics of. But here's why this is so important, I think. If we wanna see uh, a community that is unified when all we see around us is a ton of division, like if we wanna see uh, racial reconciliation in our community and in our country and in our world, if we wanna see addiction broken, like if we wanna see families healed and, and individuals healed, it doesn't start with a class or a book or a program or a president or legislature. It doesn't start with any of that. It starts with the church understanding the mercy that God has been pursuing us with. Mercy that has no qualifiers. Mercy that has no limits. Mercy that we can see in the life and in the person and in the face of Jesus. We are just left, because we don't get to, to dictate whether he offers that to us. He's doing it, whether we like it or not. What we have to do is decide how we're gonna respond. And so today, how are we gonna respond? Like Jonah, digging our heels in, dragging our feet, or are we gonna respond like the Ninevites? Who knew that we were supposed to be modeling our life after the Ninevites in this story? But will we respond like them? Not knowing all the details of where this is gonna lead us, not exactly knowing what the path forward looks like, but just understanding that this mercy that God has extended to us is too good to pass up. It's too good to ignore, and it can change everything. Maybe you're watching this morning, or you're in this room, and you've never made that decision before. I wanna encourage you, now's your time. Jesus has been pursuing you with that mercy. Decide right now how you're gonna respond. Maybe you've been here a ton of years and you've never really lived fully in the mercy that God extends to you. Now's your time. Now's the opportunity to take that step into that full, better, fulfilling life. And so as we sing this song, I think it puts some really beautiful words to the picture of mercy that Jesus portrays to us. And I would, I would encourage you, man, maybe you can use these words as a prayer. You can just listen intently and contemplate on them. And at any point during that, if you, want to, if you want to know how to move forward, either for the first time or maybe you're just now realizing some things you've never realized before, 
we would encourage you to text CP Prayer to the number 555-888. I know it's kind of a weird way of doing it, but it's awesome we have this ability. And someone will reach out to you, and someone will connect with you and walk you through what it looks like to live in the mercy that Jesus offers us. Would you pray with me? And then would you just take these next few minutes as we sing this song to, uh, to just thank God for what he's done and respond to him and what he's called us to do. Jesus, I'm really, really thankful, God, that mercy is not an abstract concept anymore. God, I'm really grateful that we don't have to look any further than at you to fully get a picture of what mercy is. God, I pray that as that changes us, that it would change our church, that it would change our town, our community, our state, and that it would continue as it has been changing the entire world, God. Lord, I pray that it starts here, that we would not be people who dig our heels in, drag our feet, but instead people who would respond quickly, passionately to the mercy that you offer us. It's not always an easy road forward. Most of the time it's not, but it's always better. And I pray we would have the courage to step into it. We love you and we thank you in your awesome name. Amen.